0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Hope everybody has had a great opportunity to take some time off and recover from a grueling Farnborough airshow or a sweltering summer as we resume our daily coverage starting today. To curb inflation, the Fed again raised rates by 0.75% as debate rages whether America is in recession. Many consider two negative growth quarters as meeting that standard, while others counter that it's more complicated, especially given strong employment figures. Among the firms that reported second- or half-year earnings included Airbus, Albany, Babcock, BAE Systems, Boeing, Crane, Garmin, General Dynamics, Heiko, Hexel, L3, Harris, Leonardo, MTU, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, Rheinmetall, Safran, Teledyne, and Textron. Uh, among them, common themes were navigating supply chain problems and how companies are working overtime to make sure their suppliers' problems don't derail their production or deliveries, and workforce needs that are going to become exacerbated as demand for products surge in the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine and ramping up efforts to deter China from invading Taiwan. As for the defense side of the business, there is a disconnect, as we've discussed many times on this program, between promised spending increases and reality even as Congress telegraphs more money for the Pentagon. And there was the blockbuster defense deal between South Korea and Poland that we're going to delve into, as well as the first flight of Korea's first indigenous stealth fighter, the JF-21. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, joining us uh, for the last time from Basque country in northern Spain. Guys, welcome back to the program. It wouldn't be a Sunday without you. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you, Vago. Always a pleasure.
0: Great to be on, Vago, and uh, greetings and good tidings from the Basque country. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And before we get to our roundtable, a reminder to check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful week look at all things space uh guys as i said welcome back ron start us off as you always do how did the group perform uh last week against the the broader market and uh obviously right earnings was driving this given how many prominent us companies uh reported over the course of the week
2: yeah it was a, a good week uh for the market uh and i think there's a couple dynamics going on here um having the expectation for gdp uh, was that we'd actually see it up a little bit, uh, and it wasn't. So we had you know, our second quarter of, of negative GDP. I think it was minus 09 percent. Um, ultimately, it'll be revised, uh, just like the the read for um, uh, GDP GDP was last time. Uh, but that being said, we have two negative quarters of GDP. In the market's mind, it's there's no debate. That's that's a recession, uh, and so. The market rallied. Why did the market rally? Because the market's interpreting that as the Fed is going to go easier on interest rates now, right? Because you know we're, we've achieved what the Fed wanted to do: slow down the economy. We're in this so far, maybe modest recession. So the, the Fed will probably move forward um, at a at a more delicate pace. Or you know, I mean, if that makes sense. Now, the the rub is, however, we, we have to see what inflation comes out as next. I think the next inflation rate is on uh, August 10th, if I remember right. Uh, so if in, inflation, if that starts to come down and we're, you know, in this, in this period where we are having negative economic growth, uh, then, then everything is pretty copacetic. And that's why you're seeing the market rally. Now, the rub would be if inflation still is high, then, then all of a sudden you, the Fed gets sort of in this, this situation where, well, what do we do now? Um, we're already slowing the economy, but inflation's still sticking um they'll probably have to raise rates again um they did say in their commentary they'll they're flexible they could go 75 they could go 50 they could go 25 at this point so we'll so we'll see what happens but the market interpretation was that so long story short you know, the market did pretty well for the week the s&p was up four percent um if you look at the the performance across our group it was really kind of mixed a bit driven by earnings performance uh, like you mentioned there was a whole litany of earnings but uh kind of in, in just to give you a feel for my world uh, uh, Transdime, who actually did not report, was up this week about 6.5%. and um, That was the case because there's some bullishness around the commercial aftermarket. Uh, Northrop Grumman of the defense guys was up the most. It was up almost 5%. They did report this week, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, uh, and then there was just sort of an array of of movement from there. Lockheed was up about three, Embraer was up about three, Boeing about a percent and a half, uh, General Dynamics 3%, Raytheon, interestingly, because of the quarter was down 2%, uh, and Textron was uh, up about 2%. So it was was real mixed. When you look at uh, the 10-year, it's hovering around 2.7%. We've been in that range for a while. The VIX was down about 5%. That measure of uh, volatility uh, down at 21.3. That's below the low end of the range where it's been. So the VIX is, is moving back. Oil was just below 100 WTI anyway. Brent was a little bit above it. Um, so it was broadly kind of a happy market week and a bit of a risk on week. But that being said, we did see both some commercial names and defense names outperforming the market and the market itself actually performing quite well.
0: Uh, And, uh, right, all eyes are on whether or not we break the 10% uh, uh, inflation mark, right? I mean, this sense, uh, at the time we started discussing this many, many months ago, well, you know, we we won't get to that point, even though there was a sentiment on the street that we could um, we could cross that Rubicon. Uh, Sash, walk us through uh, European earnings. I mean, obviously, uh, closely linked, but separate separate set of uh, drivers. Uh, and uh, we had, um, you know, I, I loved your note about cautious uh, on, uh, you know, statements by uh, Airbus, everybody working on, again, supply chain um, issues, we're going to get into a deeper Dive into uh, uh, both Airbus and Boeing uh, earnings, but sort of give us your sense on what the macro drivers were and how the group in Europe performed and why.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a you know it was it was an earnings tsunami this week, uh, and companies don't do themselves any. Um, any favours by that because it inevitably means that there's sort of less analysis of individual companies because you know we have this slew of numbers to uh, to get through during the week but we you know we accept that uh, management and probably more important the boards all need to go away on the summer holidays. Um, You know the themes uh, the defence companies were generally more positive Um, Because it was the larger defense companies in Europe reporting, I mean, most notably BA Systems and uh, Leonardo, um, we wouldn't have expected them to to see their orders turn up very much because they tend to be at the longer end of the defense cycle anyway, because they're they're predominantly prime contractors. BA came out very, very positive. I mean, you know, they they clearly are just seeing life a a huge amount better. The civil aerospace stops um, and, you know, we had Airbus, Safran, MTU are very much... They are seeing a volume up cycle or Airbus is driving a volume up cycle because they're clearly the um, absolutely at the, uh, at the front of this process. Everybody else is, is having to adapt or, or cope or whatever. Um, but there, you know, there are significant challenges for everybody concerned. Inflation is definitely one. Although, interestingly, you know, for Airbus, inflation is the biggest problem for them in defence in big old legacy contracts, A400M, where the inflation indexing clauses are very, very crude um that's a sort of that's a fascinating problem to have i mean you know i say that you know as an analyst because i'm i don't have to wear the problem um but they're not yet to about inflation as being a a major problem for the civil aerospace business um building aircraft uh but you know get natural gas supplies going into winter is going to be big problems for some of the subcontractors who actually fabricate stuff out of metal uh and that you know that's very much the aero engine businesses i think natural gas is a an issue that is going to cause more problems and more challenges uh, for countries. And particularly you know, the further north you are in Europe, um, the more the issues of, of you know, how people heat uh, their, their buildings and read their houses is going to, is going to become uh, pretty stark. But interestingly, you know, net, the sector didn't move very much during the week. We had some pretty wild movements uh, you know, Leonardo at one stage was down nine percent for no real reason we could identify, and then you know the next day pops up five again. So uh that you know there was a degree of risk on risk off go, um, going on, but also I think that you know there, w- there were not any great surprises or disappointments, and hence the sector over here, you know, it ended okay, but nothing
0: spectacular. As you put it uh, right in your, uh, in your note, Leonardo suffers from complex dynamics, right? I mean, the DRS spinoff, partial spinoff is sort of a complicated deal. And so uh, that contributes to it, even if some of the fundamentals for the, for the company are, are, are strong. Um, I want to Richard bring you uh, into the discussion. I mean, what is it that struck you as uh, interesting uh, and most noteworthy over the course of the week? And I also wanted to get your sense on monkeypox, right? I mean, and obviously a much, much, um, you know, b- being labeled by the World Health Organization as a, as a global uh, health uh, um, emergency. Uh, at the same time, it's very, very different from what we experienced with the COVID pandemic uh, broadly, even if in the wake of the pandemic, it's sparking people's habits, right? I mean, there are people who are very concerned about it, whether or not they're particularly susceptible uh, or, or not. Walk us through what you thought the, the interesting storylines for the week were from your standpoint
3: continued to hit me that the market remains strong in terms of demand for you know products and services and everything from the defense and the commercial sector. Like it's almost like an embarrassment of riches, and yet the story is dominated by supply chain disruptions uh, and, of course, uh, program execution snafus. So hence negative headlines from Raytheon and Boeing, uh, despite the fact that you know again demand is really strong. So this is a story in so many ways about you know execution and getting things right. But, you know, I keep coming back to this. The one theme of the air show the other week was just, gee, this is not a bad problem to have relative to where we thought we might be, say, during the last air show or just after the pandemic began. Uh, You know, we'll get it right eventually. And things look, the fundamentals look really strong. Monkeypox. Yeah. What do we know? What do we know about anything to do with disease? I mean, it could be another SARS, uh, that is to say, a minor glitch, or it could be something that's a bit more, well, <laughs> let's hope it's not another COVID for God's sake, but that really looks like an exception in the course of human history and diseases. So let's keep our fingers crossed and uh, just hope for the best.
0: Do, do you want to uh, talk briefly about the South Korean deal and, and what it means? Because you tie their ability to deliver to actually the broader factors that are impeding um, some of the major primes around, around the world. Talk to us a little bit about that deal and how there could actually be a tailwind for South Korea in this as far as you're concerned.
3: Yeah, you know, it was a really interesting development this week. From my standpoint, perhaps the biggest. You know, I mean, I think there's a number of interesting read-throughs. The order, of course, was dominated by 48 F-A-50 light fighters, which, of course, is uh, the combat version of the T-50 supersonic trainer. And it happened at the same time that uh, Korea's first combat aircraft full up, multi-role combat aircraft, the KF-21, made its first flight. Uh, So congratulations on that. What's sort of interesting is that pretty much every other aircraft Combat aircraft is very badly supply constrained. You know, obviously, F-35 being the real headline. F-16s keep getting delayed. Um, Rafale's real problem just getting to 30 a year. And then here comes a new player, very aggressive, idle capacity. And what's the lesson from the Ukraine conflict? The Russia's war on Ukraine? It's that numbers matter. And you've got Poland saying, well, we've got some F-16s, we've got F-35s, who knows when we'll get them. We could really use a few squadrons of a good light combat aircraft in the event something very bad happens. And there the Koreans are in the right place at the right time. So I think it was a fascinating
1: development.
0: Do um, any of you guys want to weigh in on that uh, really briefly before we start hacking through what is a giant uh, morass uh, of, of earnings? Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I'm actually. This is relatively rare, but I think I'll I'll disagree with uh, Richard on this one. I mean, I think the um, uh, the Ta-50 element of the contract was the least important part of the Polish purchase. I'm puzzled as to why uh, they buy the Ta-50s. I don't think there's such a thing as a good light like, combat aircraft in Europe. Um, I, I I find it very hard to see the circumstances where. You know, either Russia or Ukraine would fly an aircraft like that in their current conflict, i.e. in a heavily air-denied environment. Um, I suspect that the Koreans see it being much more a, a leading uh, trainer for their F-35s. Uh, sorry, the, the, the Poles see it as being more a, a leading trainer for their F-35s than anything else. But, you know, I mean, a good light fighter uh, has to carry a ton of self-protection equipment uh, to be survivable in uh, a modern European uh, environment. I was much more interested by what the Koreans are buying and what the Koreans are looking at uh, doing in terms of, you uh, know, uh, in, in, in terms of land systems. I mean, they're buying artillery, they're buying armored vehicles from uh, the Koreans, and that's a that's very very important for a couple of reasons. First of all, they, you know, the poles clearly think it's they need to diversify their sources of supply. Secondly, I think they're sending a signal to Germany, which is. If Germany doesn't shape up in terms of its foreign policy, in terms of arms exports, but also in terms of supporting Ukraine, uh, Germany loses the sort of preferential access to the Polish market. But the, the Poles are clearly very upset by how badly uh, Johnson Schultz is handling the whole Ukraine crisis. They weren't that keen on anglo merkel either in many respects. And I think, you know, when you start buying artillery and armored vehicles and you are living next to the country that is the finest producer of artillery and armoured vehicles, certainly in Europe and arguably one of the top two in the world, um, you're sending a very, very strong signal that this is a, you know, a by Germany last policy. Uh, And I think the Germans need to pay attention to that because they can't afford to have a market as, uh, you know, as large as Poland, which effectively becomes blocked in
0: quickly let's do uh, a defense spending question and i have uh, a question uh, for for ron on this and how the market re- is responding to news from the hill that the defense budget at least is is normalizing where it is we initially expected it to be but is you know one of the things Sash, that you've discussed is sort of the disconnect between expectation of strong uh, defense spending and the reality of how quickly those money taps are being opened again a lot of concerns that even though there is 70% german uh, popular support for uh, the the government coming to the aid of of Ukraine, uh, there is this persistent concern that the Germans are not doing enough uh, to support the Ukrainians. Indeed, this is a criticism in Washington as well. We're doing enough to keep Ukraine from losing as opposed to keep Ukraine from winning. Uh, And I think that Ukraine has to win and Russia has to lose in this. And I think that that is a strategic consensus. Otherwise, Putin is going to get up to more no good. Um, You know, where where is that uh, uh, spending arc right um is spending beginning to actually make it to companies to cause the needle to move uh in a, a significant way
1: Look, there are two very clearly identifiable trends very short cycle uh items i stuff that can be booked and shipped by a company um well, well within a year and sometimes within a six months is starting to turn up we saw that with saab and their entire uh, ground combat anti armor franchise with their results a couple of weeks ago, uh, they're already seeing uh, orders go up, and you know, anecdotally, companies that make ammunition, the phones are not stopping ringing. Um, and then the countries where the money is starting to be spent are the countries that are to the north and east of Europe, and that's why Poland is so important. You know, Poland is um, uh, you know far too close for comfort to Russia. Uh, they have probably relied a little bit too much. Uh, historically on the um, deterrent capability of the broader NATO uh, alliance. They've got a huge amount of Russian equipment, which is not going to be supportable uh, in the future. And uh, that's why they're starting to spend. But we're also seeing that in Slovakia and, and the Czech Republic, um, both buying armoured vehicles from the A-systems uh, Swedish business. You know, these are countries which, when they make big uh, defence orders... They- the defense order is equivalent to sometimes their entire national, their, their entire defence budget for a year. Now, okay, the you know the defense order, whether it's F-35s or armored vehicles, is spread over two to three or even five years. But um, they are, you know, they're the countries which are really making the change. The further west you go, um, you know, Spain uh, nothing at all, UK, France, UK not very, very little, France a little bit more, Italy hardly moving at all at the moment in terms of defense spending. They will probably start picking up, but you know the, the, the bigger your security blanket is in terms of distance, the less urgency there is to spend.
0: Ron, Congress is, uh, continues to debate uh, defense spending in the United States, and we're beginning to arrive at a consensus increase figure of about fifty billion dollars, uh, roughly. Any additional sort of focus uh, from investors on uh, defense spending outlook in the United States, or is this just sort of baked in now? that we're going to see more money and we're likely to see more money over the next couple of years? Or are folks taking a more differentiated view? Uh, obviously now another 700 something billion dollar deal that includes climate. We just had a couple of uh, you know $250 billion chips uh, act uh, to make the United States more competitive, right? I mean, each one of these is spending at a time interest rates are going up. And obviously if interest rates go up, it affects how the government borrows and how much we have to pay back, and the debt suddenly becomes an issue. I mean, from from your standpoint, what are investors telling you about all of these themes?
2: There really hasn't been uh, much investor concern about the level of of U.S. debt and the impact that it could have on spending. Um, I would say now it's pretty well baked in that you know this year's numbers are going to be call it 50 billion plus or minus a bit higher than uh, what was originally proposed and that we're on a trajectory of rising defense budgets over the next several years, particularly given, you know, the headlines and tensions of what's going on in in the Pacific with China uh, and uh, what's going on in Eastern Europe. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not much of a debate. I would say probably the, Bigger debate, and even this is, I think, getting more well understood. Just the time it takes to make the sausage, right? I mean, the, the budget has to go through the government, then it has to come out of, uh, you know, from the treasury and outlays. It's got to go to the companies. So by the time you actually see this in the top line of defense contractors, there's a, there's a delay, and I, and I think the market's starting to get that now. Um, the folks that originally. I, uh, my senses who got into defense because there could be some immediate upside because of what was going on in Eastern Europe uh, might be shaken out or have learned that, Hey, you know, it just takes some time for all this to, to play out.
0: Richard uh, your sense on how all of these themes are sort of coming together and when what they mean,
3: you know, uh, here again, I think we're looking at a story about execution being the limiting factor because the cash is, <laughs> it's being produced, you know, defense spending, spend, spending in Europe is strongly on the rise as we know. You know, it, it's really interesting just drilling down into the uh, proposed uh, US defense budget. I had thought that 150-ish would be kind of the ceiling for procurement. It's now heading quickly to 160, um, for, you know, RDT and E is uh, helpfully above 130, most likely. I mean, this is an extremely strong market I mean, you look at the time it takes to filter through, as Ron says, also for the sausage to be made, we've got years ahead uh, of this cash being dispersed and then additional budgets probably being at an even higher level. It's pretty clear that there's broad bipartisan support for higher levels of defense spending. It's pretty clear that, you know, the macroeconomic limiting factors that used to be discussed by, well, uh, what we used to call deficit hawks, uh, just... (laughs) <laughs> no one is discussing that anymore. it doesn't seem to be an issue. And of course historically you look at the last 70, 80, 150 years, there's really no connection between macroeconomics and defense spending anywhere you know as a matter of fact, there's very little connection between export demand and other macroeconomic factors like say commodity and resource prices. there's you know defense spending purely takes place in a geopolitical context. people feel threatened they spend more on defense, we're in for a really good decade for all of the horrible reasons that we read in the headlines every day
0: let's uh move uh, to uh, company specifics and so if uh, everybody uh, is amenable uh, to that and Ron uh, start us off right tail of two companies let's start with Boeing and Airbus first because obviously there's a lot of focus in terms of the competitive dynamics both of the companies very similar factors uh I loved your note you know you're just sort of you know one was very cautious Airbus was very cautious uh, despite positive numbers uh a sense uh among some including our mutual friend Lauren Thompson that Boeing may have bottomed out at this point and it's Uh, upside. And certainly, that's the narrative that the company wants uh, to get out there, Ron. Start us off on what we heard from uh, these two giant companies uh, and some of the earnings that tie into that, right? I mean, these companies both have an enormous draft. uh, uh, Sash, again, uh, picking up something from one of your notes. Guillaume Fourie, uh, the Airbus chief executive, went to great lengths to uh, compliment GE's uh, chief executive, uh, Larry Culp, a uh, little bit more, uh, or at least absent in terms of commentary about Raytheon's uh, Greg Greg Hayes. You know, Ron, st- start us off. Sash, want to get your take, and then Richard, yours, on on where these big names stand, and then want uh, to cut uh, to the next layer. Uh, because as you mentioned, Ron, right, Northrop Grumman has really is setting the performance standard across uh, the field. Um, you know, so so walk us through Boeing and Airbus, what we heard from the two companies and what you make out of them.
2: Yeah, on, on Boeing, let's start with that. I'll I'll leave Airbus for Sash. I mean, I mean, Boeing was an interesting quarter because there was there was some good and there was some some bad, and it was it was really kind of mixed. I mean, the 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 the, the part that really did the best was uh, Boeing's services business. Boeing services was up and it had the highest margins in the company, uh, and you know, Boeing services really was kind of the shining star. Um, the, the worst part was Boeing Defense. I mean, they're, they're still taking charges in that business. Now, their, their backlog was down, their top line was down, their margins were down, and they took charges. So when you look at Boeing's defense business and you compare it to every other defense business that reported this week, and there was a litany of them, um, they were by far and away uh, the weakest. Uh, and then when you look at Boeing Commercial, again, that was a mix of some good and some bad uh On the good side, if you look at the margins at Boeing Commercial and you strip out uh, sort of the noise, the underlying margins were, I think about 6%, which is the highest margins we've seen Boeing print and Boeing Commercial for quite some time. Um, that being said, uh, they also cut their expectations on how many 737s are going to deliver this year, right? So they came into the year uh, saying that they were going to deliver. Uh, about 500 airplanes, and then uh, they're going to be below 500 airplanes. Now they're in the low 400s. and our forecast, we have them delivering about 395 airplanes this year. So, uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't welcome news. They did telegraph pretty well uh, that, you know, 787 was very close to being, getting green-lighted by the FAA that kind of Friday after the close it was. Um, so uh, that's, that's good news. So, you know, Boeing commercial really was a mix of good good and bad. Boeing defense, not good. And then Boeing services actually pretty good, so it was a mixed bag. Um, they did generate some cash flow, not a lot, but they did generate some, which was uh, uh, you know in the right direction. Uh, so I think the, the market was initially. Really happy with them generating cash flow. If you look how the stock traded during the day, it opened up a bunch, I think it was like 4 or 5%, and then ended up closing the day down um, because uh, the, the most investors were pretty disappointed in the cadence on how 7 through 7s are going to get delivered. Um, and I think that's that's kind of where Boeing was. It was sort of a mixed bag, good and bad.
0: Um, let, me, let me just uh, pull a little bit on uh, the defense challenges uh, that are uh, lingering. Break, break those down for us. Uh, obviously, KC forty six has been a challenge, although it looks like that program has turned a corner. T seven, that program looks like it has turned turned a corner. We're we're and and obviously, right? I mean, we still have the Air Force One uh, challenge. I mean, how did the company break that down and explain what the what the problems are? Across, across yeah, the I mean, I mean they, they they
2: they took they took charges across a couple of different programs, um, and I mean, the explanation, and, and I think this is something maybe a more broader observation. All the defense companies were talking about supply chain challenges and labor challenges, and kind of how you handled those challenges um, really was a key differentiator on how you how you performed. Um, that's sort of an obvious statement, but how the stock performed too um and and what's fascinating and i think this is counterintuitive right so Going into the supply chain issues and the supply chain thing that's going on right now, I think the notion was that commercial would be ultimately in worse shape than defense broadly. But it's kind of worked out the other way because in a commercial business, you have a lot more freedom in how you can handle your suppliers and what you do with inventory and what you buy and how you you just have more degrees of freedom and more levers to pull um, as a management team to kind of manage through it. In defense, defense in some ways is almost a just-in-time industry, right? I mean, the budget comes up year on year, and that budget that that comes out every year, unless you're a multi-year program, um, that drives how you're going to buy what you're going to buy. Uh, and because of that, your your lead times on things are, are more limited. And and that's what we're seeing, you know, fascinatingly in, in defense is, you know, there's those limited lead times and how, you know, defense is just- the way defense is with the government budgeting process, a much more challenging supply chain thing to manage in a very very tight supply chain environment. They have a little more flexibility with labor, but generally your labor is going to be driven by the pro- programmatics, and the programmatics are driven by the sort of annual budget cadence. And the companies that were, I think, more forward looking with uh, retaining and training uh, personnel are the ones that are doing better. Um, and you mentioned you know, Northrop Grumman was one of the companies and Northrop Grumman for, for years has always impressed me uh, with how they handle their people, what they do with their people, how they retain people, how they train people. It's a, it's, I think it's a real core competency uh, for Northrop Grumman, not um, an afterthought where it kind of feels that way with a lot of other companies in not just defense, but kind of across industries. But uh, it seems like at Northrop, uh, at least from an outsider's um, point of view that retaining people, training people, um, is a real core competency, and
0: and in the current environment, that really helped them a lot. Sash, um, walk us through uh, where um, you know what you thought of uh, Airbus and Richard. Uh, just to give you a precursor on the question, why don't you synthesize what we're hearing about both of these companies ultimately in your sense uh, on on where we're going? Because you know Airbus was was cautious but still remarkably bullish about where it was going to end up on production and the estimate on what the market split is, has been eerily accurate uh, for for this team, uh, right? Sash, t- take it away and give us your, give us your sense on, on what you heard, because there was some space elements of it with Ariane 6, uh, there were defense elements of it with A400M, as well as obviously on the commercial side of the business across the enterprise.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, so I mean, look, th- this was ultimately yeah, an, in- an inline quarter. It was a quarter that pretty much came out as expected. Um, tiny change to guidance, they cut the number of aircraft they're forecasting to deliver this year from 720 to 700, um, but they haven't changed, you know, the, the outcome, which is five and a half billion euros of, uh, uh, of earnings before interest and tax, three and a half billion of free cash flow. So, you know, this is a business that is working, functioning very, very well. Um, But supply chain is a big issue. I mean, Guillaume Forrest said sort of up front, our crystal ball isn't working very well. You know, we Airbus didn't forecast the impact that, you know, that the supply chain would have on on production this year. Uh, You know, that was sort of refreshingly honest. He then went on to, you know, he explicitly name-checked Larry Culp of General Electric as having been very, very uh, helpful cooperative at the Farnborough Air Show in terms of dealing with the shortage of engines. And as you rightly point out, did not um, extend the same courtesy to uh, Greg Hayes at United Technologies. Engines are Airbus's biggest problem, but actually every aircraft is vulnerable to the weakest supplier. And you know I, it's entirely possible that you know, Airbus will have a connector problem at some stage, just as Boeing had it, um, a, a couple of quarters ago. But yeah, you know they're out delivering Boeing, at the moment, um, well over 1.5 to 1. Uh, On our forecast, they'll probably continue that uh, through uh, the middle of the decade. The challenges are, can they get the production rate uh, up as fast as they want to? Clearly not. They've slipped slipped the increase from 55 A320s a month to 65 A320s a month by about six months. Um, The the totemic uh, figure, which is 75 a320s a month. They've never produced that before. Um, but that's now something for the, you know, for, for 2025. I would say that's a that's an aspiration uh, or a target, but it certainly isn't a forecast at the moment. I wouldn't want to put money on 75, A320s a month, not because there isn't demand, but because the supply chain is uh remains under a huge amount of uh of stress. And you know, at, you know, pretty much every quarter they they have to shave a tiny amount off. What were the other bits that were interesting, though? They're still thinking about pushing up wide body rates, only by a bit, uh, you know, one, an extra aircraft a month for the A350, a bit less than that for the A330. Um, there is, you know, they see some demand there. They might be right. You know, they've, they've had some success um, uh, in terms of selling A330s in particular. The one that I worry about is the A220, because I just don't think they've got the backlog to support 14 aircraft a month. But I can see that they want to be able to deliver that number because that's the sort of magic number at which a220 starts to break even at the moment that's a loss making uh program they're playing a very very long game there as you said with defense and space there are some you know it's a marginal division for airbus unlike boeing this is not the division that is going to make or make or break the company nothing like it airbus is a civil aircraft company with a bit of defense and space added on Um, but Ariane Six, the you know the next generation launcher, they've had to completely rescope. It was clearly uncompetitive against SpaceX, and quite a lot of write-off, or you know, some implied some write-offs associated with that rescoping. A four hundred M is you know the gift that keeps on taking regrettably. Fantastic aircraft, they just don't make any money on it. And the the thing that hurt them this quarter uh, was inflation. That really was where <laughs> inflation came in. The reason being that the A four hundred M contract. Has very poorly defined inflation uh, um, clauses. It's not like Civil Aerospace, where it's very clear what the inflation uh, clauses are. A four hundred M, I guess that they are probably two percent behind inflation at any one stage, perhaps even more, and that uh, and that hurts them. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you look at the defense business, the Eurodrone um, is which they are actually the prime contractor, that's starting to pick up now, and that's, that's driving the top line as well. So, you know, overall, in in line, but in line at a pretty high level for the industry at this stage, you don't listen to Airbus talking and think that they're referring to economies in recession to come to, you know, to circle back to your initial point about, right. um, uh, you know, where, where are we in the economic cycle? No, their problems are generally those of growth and execution.
0: And a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Richard, your sense to sort of wrap up. Uh, the, you know, what we've heard from both uh, Boeing uh, and uh, Airbus. And then I want to get into a lightning round of looking at the rest of U.S. earnings uh, as well as the rest of uh, European earnings. Go ahead, Richard.
3: You said it before, uh, we've eerily anticipated that two to one market share split between Airbus and Boeing, and it looks like that's exactly what's happening. I'm uh, a little more optimistic on Airbus's ability to scale, uh, to ramp rather, to definitely mid 60s, possibly, I don't see any reason why not mid 70s. You know, one sort of macro theme that maybe it's good to get Ron's perspective on at some point, is maybe just the slowdown of the rest of the economy, particularly the consumer goods manufacturing sector, maybe that'll free up materials, resources, and of course, people for our industry. You know, we might just be decoupled from broader macroeconomic trends. Another thing Airbus might decide to try, and I think you're hearing inklings of this, is to simply take a totally different approach to the supply chain and say, hey, we like you more. We're not going to be doing any partnering for success. Yes, we've had our flirtations with uh, various pricing pressure initiatives, but, you know, we're going to be your preferred customer for your goods. Prioritize us, please. I think if they pulled that off, they would probably get great results. Um, we'll see. Meanwhile, Boeing, of course, you know, kind of stuck in second year. Um, maybe that will change. But you know, Boeing has become such a show me story. Boeing needs two things. One is a wide body market recovery, and the other is a new large narrow body one of those things is in their control. They can't affect the wide body market. The most they can do is get the seven, eight back in production, which thankfully there appears to be progress on. Um, But the one thing they can do is move aggressively towards that new larger narrow body that we've spoken about for years now. They of course show no signs of doing that. But until they do that, it is the safest forecast that any group of three can make at this point to continue with our two to one, That's the story. It will keep happening. Uh, One other point, you know, inflation is such a big issue, but there are so many fixed price contracts that both Airbus and Boeing are afflicted with on the defense side that I think are going to be really interesting. Sash highlights A400M. Absolutely. I've always said that you you look at the structure of that contract it was it was kind of like a, a suicide pill taken by a healthy person in order to collect an insurance policy or something. It's just bizarre. And it worked more or less well, kind of sort of maybe unless well, unless inflation happens. But what are the odds of that? Whoops. Um, and of course Boeing, you know, <laughs> just a bunch of lowball bids with, you know, no, very little provision for inflation because of the fixed price nature of these contracts. KC-46, T-7, worst of all, God knows, Air Force One. And Of course, they're famous for now for saying, gee, we shouldn't have signed that contract. So, you know, you're going to have that pressure. And bizarrely, we're going to see both Airbus and Boeing pressured downward by their defense side, as Ron points out.
0: By the way, uh, 10 points uh, on the suicide pill uh, thing didn't see that one coming. Uh, and uh, kudos to you for the show me, right? Uh, Missouri's uh, state motto. And indeed, uh, Boeing just averted a, a strike uh, there, narrowly averted a strike there uh, at one of its most important industrial um, f- facilities. Ron, I'm going to give you a chance really quickly to respond uh, to Richard and then give us kind of a round robin on what uh, jumped out at you earnings wise, given the the sheer. The number of companies that reported and whoever we don't get to this week, uh, we we will uh, touch base uh, and follow up on next week, but sort of, you know, answer, if you will, uh, Richard's question, and then uh, we can get into uh, earnings. And then Sash, want to go around the horn with you really quickly as well on, on what you thought were sort of interesting takeaways from European firms. Go ahead, uh, uh, Ron.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting point that Richard makes that maybe if you were to see... Um, you know, employment slowdown in some other industries, it could free up some labor for, for aerospace. My only, my only pushback on that modest pushback on that would be um, the aerospace labor force tends to be pretty highly trained and specific um, to what they do. Um, so I'm not sure, um, you know, kind of regionally, how that all how that would work out. Um, but, um, you know, kind of maybe counterintuitively, if we're to see a bit of a slowdown, maybe that would be a welcome thing. Um, from a labor perspective uh, for for the aerospace and defense industry, we'll, we'll ultimately see. The, the rub is, however, if we were to see too much of a downturn, I mean, that could start impacting air traffic itself, right? I mean, I know we're in this this robust environment, but air traffic for you know however many years, 30, 40 years, has been pretty tightly tied to uh, global economic activity. And if we were to see that slow down, which we're starting to see, um, one would expect... Uh, Once sort of this revenge travel thing kind of ends, you get back to sort of normal um, economic ties between travel and GDP. So, So we'll see where that all plays out.
0: Let's uh, switch gears. Sash, it's been a while since we've heard from you. Give us kind of the lightning round on what you thought were the most interesting takeaways from the uh, European companies that reported. Obviously, we have MTU, Rheinmetall, BAE Systems, Babcock. Right, Babcock sold its uh, European rescue services operation to a private uh, uh, equity. Uh, fund, uh, which was was welcome. There were some folks who looked at that business and, and questioned it. But anyway, don't want to get focused on that. Give us sort of, you know, the the broad takeaways from your standpoint and the things that you think uh, the audience should uh, should have in mind uh, at the end of this program.
1: Okay, first takeaway: European companies have got an incredible tailwind at the moment from the strength of the dollar against the euro. Whether you think that's because the dollar is unreasonably strong or the euro is just a basket case doesn't terribly matter at this stage. You know, when you have the currencies trading at, you know, on occasion parity or or even from a European uh, perspective, better than that, it's a astonishing uh, benefit for European companies at some stage. European aerospace companies tend to be pretty well hedged, which means that this doesn't drop through to their results in 2022 and in most cases not till 23 or in 23 or or most of 24 but it builds up over time as they hedge it really affects their competitiveness in terms of bidding for new business now because they can bid for new business with their dollar sorry with their euro cost base and their dollar prices are just lower if that's how they, they want to do it and most managements on calls this week frankly, just can't believe it. It's not they are acting with sort of glee. It's just, you know, they see this being such an astonishing situation. They don't want to sort of get overexcited or indeed let investors get overexcited because they think it'll all go back to you know normal and uh, you know dollar rate of about 120 or something. But it isn't the most astonishing tailwind for them over time. And, um, you know, Airbus is hedged uh, through to the middle of the decade. But if Airbus has any uh, empty slots, they, you know, their competitiveness uh, against an equivalent Boeing aircraft is uh, is twenty percent better than it was um, uh, six nine months ago. If they choose to take it take it all as price. So that that was the that was the first um, uh, first big theme. And then just you know at, at the micro level, um, Babcock was interesting. I think this is UK defense contractor predominantly. It's got civil aerospace or civil aviation services activities which they are getting rid of because uh, running a whole load of helicopters doing uh, fire and rescue stuff down in Europe is fragmented and astonishingly low, uh, uh, low return on capital and, and low margin. But what was interesting is that they said they're starting to see signs from their key customers, not just the UK, um, uh, Canada, Australia uh, uh, as well. but starting to see signs from their key customers of um, Ukraine related uh demand you know effectively these are phone calls saying what can you do their bet and their ceo david lockwood i think has got a very very good handle on the industry is that when politicians come back from the summer break things start to get much more uh focused because it'll be obvious that ukraine has not gone away ukraine is actually you know the war of this decade probably and uh that's when you start to see and that's when they start to see inquiries turn into orders they were much more bullish than i expected them frankly.
0: Ron, uh, give us uh, your tour uh, through earnings and uh, what uh, jumped out at you in particular, whether it was for the smaller companies like uh, Crane or Heiko or Hexel or uh, the bigs.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, a lot of it really came down to um, supply chain, right? I mean, that was the, the, the biggest question. Uh, you know, demand on both the defense side and the commercial side is, uh, is resilient. Uh, and and increasing you know both on the OEM side and, and in the aftermarket uh we did have this week uh, both textron and general dynamics report on uh, and they both have large business jet segments demand in the business jet market is uh doing quite well uh but it's it's uh, again this tension between uh demand and uh, the constraints uh put on you by your supply chain and and, and how you're managing that uh, so it's you know for for example, uh, General Dynamics at Gulfstream is doing uh, a, a very good job of managing uh, the supply chain, supply chain constraints that they have and still delivering aircraft in um, the numbers that they thought they would. Um, and it's been a little bit more of a constraint for Textron, and, and investors found that uh, disappointing. Um, there's you know plenty of demand for the size of aircraft that Cessna or Textron Aviation produces, although they're they are being throttled back by. Uh, the supply chain and, 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 and when we say supply chain that's right. today that's almost a euphemism for castings and forgings and the engine producers really it's uh, the engine producers that seem to be the big, the big uh, bottleneck uh, for the industry and it's the same thing on defense and the companies that are managing those hurdles better are performing better financially and that's showing up in their, in their, in their share prices. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the biggest takeaway. And, and, and broadly, that was probably one of the more important things to come out of Farmborough was uh, the discussion on the supply chain and how companies are, are managing it. And, and I think maybe one more point that uh, I think is important to bring up is that these, these supply chain challenges just aren't going to end next quarter. They're going to probably work into next year. And I think we've had several companies you know point that out, being pretty honest about it, um, that this isn't just going to change overnight. Um, so, so we'll see how it goes, but, uh, I think that was probably, uh, the, the most, most important, uh, read across from all the companies that reported.
0: Richard, uh, I want to go to you. Um, one of the things, you know, we always share, uh, articles, uh, you know, obviously, uh, one of the, uh, eyebrow raisers was Kathy Warden, uh, the Northrop CEO's, uh, statement that, Hey, because of our B-21 experience, we could build a combat aircraft. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, indeed, Northrop Grumman is integral to the F thirty five program in center fuselage. It's been critical uh, from um, an F eighteen standpoint, Um, right? I mean, walk walk us through. And we've discussed on this program that we think that the company is one of uh, the uh, end gap. Uh, firms, in, in part because of the floor space expansion that the company uh, has had. And we talked to uh, Northrop uh, Aeronautics boss, uh, Tom Jones, He didn't discuss NGAD in particular, but we did discuss what a successful NGAD program would look like, uh, in part, and the company has all the skill sets. From, from your standpoint, what was interesting about what Kathy Warden said? Uh, or are we just reading too much into it? It's an incredibly competent company, both unmanned and unmanned. You know, I
3: think that really comes down to it. We've always thought it's either Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman. And Northrop Grumman, of course, high, uh, is, you know, they can integrate aircraft, execute successfully. They're in DOD's good graces. And, of course, they've, as Ron said, they've retained the talent needed to execute on programs, you know, and on top of that, yes, they do have a great deal of combat aircraft experience, the role in the super one of the F-35. And uh, as, uh, as uh, my old pal J.J. Gertler has said time again, we don't know what next generation air dominance really means. I mean, obviously it's a system of systems. It could also be an air dominance vehicle that doesn't resemble a, tra- a you know, a traditional uh, high-speed combat aircraft. It could resemble something like a, a B-21 for all we know. And, or it could be a system that includes systems like that. We just don't know. So for her to say that, I think it was quite interesting. It confirmed what we've known for years, that there's a very good chance they're playing some kind of role in this program. What's of course still baffling is that it has entered EMD, but has not been decided in terms of uh, prime contractor. That is fascinating. We just don't know.
0: Um, It is a much more old school uh, approach. Uh, to potentially delivering on the program because the Pentagon used to do that kind of thing uh, many, many years ago to make sure that it was mitigating risk, even if we can look at these programs and see right F-35 DNA across the piece, whether on engines, combat systems, sensors, materials, producibility, you're advancing that with the B-21. And indeed, JJ, when he was at Congressional Research Service, would make that point. What if it's actually a much, much bigger airplane? than a much, much smaller airplane. And actually, if you look at some of the you know artist's representations, which mean nothing or could mean everything, it it indicates to you that actually the airplane uh, might actually be a, a larger than smaller airplane. Guys, thanks very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Hope you guys have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much.
2: Uh, always a pleasure to be here, Vargo. It wouldn't be a weekend yeah. without it. Yeah, thanks very so much, Vargo. Have a great week.
3: Great to be here, Vago. Thanks for having us on.
0: Uh, Indeed. And uh, bon voyage, especially to you, uh, Richard, as the family decamps back to the United States uh, and look forward to having you back on uh, back in this uh, time zone and in this city. Everybody, thanks very much again.